the Appendix N Podcast, Episode 20, A Martian Odyssey by Stanley Weinbaum. Welcome to the Appendix N Podcast, a Tome Show production. My name is Jeffrey Wynn. This is the show where we read and discuss the authors that influenced Gary Gygax, one of the creators of Dungeons & Dragons. In the 1979 Dungeon Master's Guide, Gygax published a list of his favorite fantasy authors, and this list has come to be known simply as Appendix N. Every month on this show, we will read a book and talk about it. We will review the story and talk about how it relates to the game being played at your table. If you would like to be a part of the show, you can email the host of The Tome Show, Jeff Greiner, at thetomeshow at gmail.com. Listen to the end of the episode for a list of some upcoming books. Before we get to the program, let us take a moment to mention our sponsor, Noble Knight, online retailer of new and out-of-print role-playing games, war games, board games, and miniatures. Since 1997, they have helped thousands of gamers from around the world save money and find exactly what they need. You can find them on the web at www.noblenight.com. And with me tonight, as always, is my co-host, Jeff Wickstrom. Hi there. Happy to be here. As always, happy to be here. Yeah, why not? And welcoming back to the show, uh, my special guest, Jeremiah McCoy. Hi. I'm glad I could make it again. Uh, I, I don't always get a chance, and I'm, I'm always happy to. When, when was the last time you were, you were on? Uh, we were talking about the... Oh, what was the name of the, the... It was the one where it was up in the uh, mountains in like Alaska and... Oh was right! It was Valley. it was the merit story. It was yeah, uh, yeah. in the mist. Yeah. Cool. Well, since you haven't been on in a while, why don't you tell the listeners uh, what you like to play or what you like to read or some combination thereof? Uh, well, I uh, I've played just about everything. Um, I I'm a I'm a, an old school gamer. I've been playing for thirty some odd years. Uh, I have a youtube show where i talk about gaming a lot uh called the basics of the game and uh lately what i've been uh, investigating is some of the uh uh old school revival science fiction games like uh white star and stars without that number yeah and uh oh uh, strange uh was it strange stars is another new one this this story should tie right into that okay yeah. And also, uh, welcome back to the show, my other special guest, Chris Constantine. Welcome. Pleased to be back. And why don't you tell the listeners what what you're up to these these days? Well, not a lot right now. I'm prepping to do a free release of our latest book of psychic abilities for Dark Revelations, a role-playing game, which we'll talk about more at the end of the podcast. Sure, absolutely. And tonight we are discussing an author that we have never before talked about on Appendix N and probably won't again, uh, Stanley Weinbaum. I have had never heard of this person, but apparently, much like uh, Merritt, he was a big deal in his time. And H.P. Uh, Lovecraft was a fan of his, Isaac Asimov and Frederick Pohl both understood his importance to uh, science fiction, so let's let's get down to discovering just, just who this, this guy was. Uh, Stanley Grauman Weinbaum was born April 4th, 1902. He died December 14th, 1935. Uh, so kind of like Howard, he, he died young. He was born in uh, Louisville, Kentucky. He was, he was Jewish. Uh, he attended the University of Wisconsin-Madison, but was apparently expelled for taking an exam for a friend on a bet. 
Uh, his first novel was a romance called The Lady Dances, published in 1933, and apparently, other than science fiction, what he, he really liked to write was uh, romances. A Martian Odyssey was published in 1934 and was a major hit at the time. It, it, it made him instantly famous overnight, and uh, sadly, uh, only only 18 months later, he was he was dead from cancer. But in in those 18 months, he wrote he wrote more science fiction stories, and he collaborated with other authors on something called Challengers. Uh, sorry, Challenge of the Unknown which is apparently different from the challenge of the unknown that H.P. Lovecraft worked on with A. Merritt and C.L. Moore and Frank Belknap Long. So I, I'm not quite sure what to, what to make of that. Apparently, apparently challenge of the unknown was a popular title at the time. Okay, so now that we've, we've gotten that out of the way, uh, let's get down to the story. A, a Martian Odyssey takes place on... Mars, and Chris, why don't you tell us who are who the who the characters are? Well, the main character is Jarvis, and it's more or less told from a third-party perspective. Here, it's him retelling his exploits after getting back to his ship from Mars, after being essentially crashing and sort of basically making his way back, and telling it to Putz, the engineer, Leroy, the biologist, and Harrison, the astronomer. Basically, he had to go 150 miles south through low plateaus through desert orange-tinted lands where we got to visit the key weird symbology of the Mars environment, for lack of a better term. All right, and this, this, this is a Mars as it was understood it, you know, at, the, at, at the time. So it's, 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 it's very cold, but apparently Dick, Dick Jarvis can, can breathe uh, with, without, a, without a spacesuit. Uh, and and they, they sort of fly around on these you know, rocket-propelled aircraft aircraft yep uh the uh this is a, a around the time of percival lowell and his uh assertions that there was in fact a uh uh life on mars and they were making canals so that right. has has to have played a lot into what they were what he was working with there right yeah. well percival lowell would have been of uh, like weinbaum's father's generation I think yeah. he was active at the end of the 19th century, and Weinbaum was writing in the 30s. But the, the idea of canals on Mars was certainly a well-understood one um, by the 1930s. Yeah, Bur yeah, Burroughs was definitely writing about, about canals on, on Mars, and he was writing in the, in the 19-teens, or at least he started writing in the 19-teens, and then it never, never stopped. Um, well, he did eventually die. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, or so they would have you believe. <laughs> right. He's he's currently buried in a in a sepulcher that's sealed from from the inside. Um, <laughs> all right. So the the story is is basically about this this guy Dick 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 Jarvis whose plane uh, crashes. There him 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 and these these fellow scientists they're they're on, an, on a a manned expedition to Mars. This is sometime in the 21st century when we've uh, you know, de developed rocket-powered everything, uh, and they're they're the first scientific exped expedition to to Mars. And Jarvis sets out in in one direction, and another of his colleagues sets out in a in a in a different direction. And Dick Jarvis uh, uh, crashes, and the story is is all about his his long walk 
uh, back to his his uh, compatriots and all the things that he meets along the way. And one of the, one of the first things that that he meets is this is this in, intelligent bird creature who he calls Tweel. And apparently Tweel was a big deal at the time. Um, Wikipedia uh, quotes Isaac Asimov as, as saying, uh, uh, Weinbaum had written a perfect Campbellian science fiction story before John W. w. Campbell. And, and we'll, we'll get to who that is later, but he, he, he says, Tweel may be the first creature in science fiction to fulfill Campbell's dictum, write me a creature who thinks as well as a man or better than a man, but not like a man. And in this story, Weinbaum gives us several examples of, of how Tweel is intelligent and maybe even more intelligent than Dick, Dick Jarvis, but his, his sort of logic patterns are completely incomprehensible. Yeah, he's uh, definitely uh, uh, a very alien alien, which for the time was unusual. You know, uh, one of the other notes I saw was that people, when they were writing about alien cultures, it would be lizard men or bird men or fish men, but they were always essentially men with some other weirdness mm-hmm. and this as this we've was... seen uh, quite a bit in the stories that we've read as part of appendix n um uh, certainly the stories of edgar rice burroughs fall into that category absolutely and even this the is... green martians are basically just guys yeah this this is a creature that is borderline incomprehensible but still intelligent Right. The, the the way the way I I sort of in, interpret this in my in my in my nerd brain, the, the the aliens up to this point were Star Trek aliens, basically pastiches of human culture with some weird bumps on their on, on their heads, and and Tweel is is a more Star Wars alien. He's he's just a a weird out there thing, completely unrelated to hu- humanity. It's interesting that you should mention Star Trek because while I'm not an expert in the history of science fiction, I think that you could make the case that this story, which was hugely popular and influential, did a lot to uh, sort of pave the way for Star Trek. You have a group of guys who are doing a scientific expedition. Um, They are organized. They each have a specialty. They're working together and they're encountering uh, a weird situation that's a basic like template that mm-hmm. became really common as the premise of your science fiction story in like the 40s and 50s but prior to this story it was it was not how gen- generally how things worked you know you're right i think i think this is one of the first stories we've we've read that that features scientists in intentionally ec- ec- exploring a planet as opposed to you know ad- adventurers or or cowboys or whatever accidentally winding up yeah a, these in dudes a strange place. these dudes could be starfleet and like i don't think we'll get to that again until like like mountains of madness um that also explains the multi-ethnicity of the party where you have a russian you have a french i don't think they ever typified what harrison was and you got jarvis so it almost feels like an international effort to go up there to mars mm-hmm. yeah 
Now, uh, that seems to be the implication. Uh, at one point, they talk about the Yerba Mate Hour. Um, Yerba Mate is some kind of, according to Wikipedia, it's some kind of tea-like substance that is very popular in South America. So it's sort of like the Folgers Crystals uh, huh. Radio Hour. So yeah, I mean, but in it, the future, where everybody's drinking Yerba Mate. Sweet. Yes, yeah, so it, 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 it definitely seems like Weinbaum is trying to imagine how human civilization might might have, have evolved 100 years after his own, his own time. So that's, that, that's really cool. I, I also like that uh, it is so, not so um, utopian a vision that they have somehow lost all of their uh, distinctive uh, national traits, I guess. You know, they, they all have their 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 languages, their accents, mm-hmm. um, yeah, and you know they're still you know apparently carrying a revolver with them. So, right, yeah, they've 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 got rocket powered spaceships, but uh, they're they're still using uh, guns that, that that shoot bullets. All right. So, so uh, when, when, now, when when I read this quote uh, by by Isaac Asimov, I I had no idea who John W. Campbell was. And Jeremiah, apparently, you know. So why don't you enlighten me as well as the listeners? What what is this this dictum? Um, he um, he was the editor of Astounding Magazine for a good long time, and he wanted better science fiction. Uh, and so he put a lot of you know, I want more of this. I want more of this. And one of the ones was that he wanted aliens that were as smart as men, but didn't think like them. And I think that, uh, is, you know, definitely reflected here. He's the guy who wrote the story that later got turned into the movie, the thing. Hmm. Um, John, and John Carpenter. Yeah. John Carpenter, uh, made the 1982. There was one in 1951 as well. Mm-hmm. There are a couple uh, of episodes of the X Files that are basically the thing. Yeah, and uh, and yeah, it's one of the most iconic uh, science fiction stories out there, and it involves them finding it an alien that really they don't have a frame of reference with, they can't negotiate with, they don't know why it's doing the things it's doing, and they have to deal with it as as an alien. And it it may be worth pointing out that the them who discover the alien are a team of uh, exploratory scientists. Yeah, in the Ar- Arctic. group up at the Arctic Circle. Yeah, but they're not military. They're not gentlemen adventurers. They're scientists. Yeah, it, it, Campbell is, in fact, uh, so famous and so influential that the award that they give at the Hugo for best new writer is called the John W. Campbell Award. Interesting, and and yet apparently this this Campbell came after Wein- Weinbaum because because Isaac Isaac Asimov says says Weinbaum pre predates him. So that's that's really cool. By yeah, about a did, decade. Yeah. Okay, Sorry. so let's 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 get let's get back to Tweel. Who wants to who wants to take take a stab at like trying to describe Tweel? Well, uh, basically he's ostrich like. His beak acts as a spring. He has a sm- he picks up a smattering of English words while he's there, but it seems easier to communicate with him than numbers rather than words. It was particularly noteworthy that he didn't need to drink at all during the entire travel time in order to do so. And his armament consisted of a crystal squirt gun. Yeah, he, Basically, didn't, he didn't sleep either. Not at all. And it was actually really interesting just having so an alien a design, yet he was friendly, especially after Jarvis saved his life in the first scene against a multi-armed tentacle monster. 
which we only find out later what it actually is. Yeah, yeah. And he, he, but he's he's really weird. Like there were there were times where I was I was thinking Looney Tunes as I was as I was reading this story. Maybe maybe be, be, because the scientists in the in the spaceship keep saying things like Looney Daffy Screwy whenever whenever uh, Dick Dick Jarvis is is trying to describe this 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 creature. But like there's it, there's there's times where like Tweel launches himself up up in the air and lands. You know, beak beak down in the in the in the dirt, and like what? Well, Tweel has uh, four toes on its feet. Tweel has four fingers on its hand. Tweel has a little round body and a tiny head. Um, I think he's basically describing a cartoon character. Actually, he might be describing a very specific Coco character. Do you remember Gogo from the original Looney Tunes adventures? Yeah, I, I, I thought of that. And then there's there's the one where um, uh, uh, Daffy gets redrawn to have like a like a flower head and a and a and a tail. Well, you know, the one where where Bugs Bugs Bunny is is like drawing drawing the cartoon and Daffy's in it. And 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 doesn't Marvin the Martian have like henchmen that are basically giant green birds? I, like, I seem to remember yeah, well, something I, like I that. Would... I would point out that um, the uh, Looney Tunes cartoon that introduced the uh, the dodo that you're talking about didn't come out until 1938, which was several years after the story was published. Well, certainly, but it it it, it could have been, been the story might have been the influence for that at later points, depending on what they were reading at the time. Oh, absolutely. You know, yeah. Maybe some you know, there's always some sort of connection when it comes to all sorts of crazy stuff like this. Yeah, if you you know look up Yo Yo Dodo from Porky and Wacky Land, circa nineteen thirty eight, do a Google image search, you see something that looks an awful lot like uh, like the description of Tweel. It 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 also could have been that that's basically what humor was at this at this time. You know, something something screwy, something something daffy. You know, oh, yeah, this was the the era of the Marx Brothers, right? Well, and. Uh, it's while the the character has its silly elements uh it's only silly from the context of the guy trying to understand what what he's being told mm-hmm. like if from a broader pros- uh you know perspective it might not be that silly from the culture of where you know whatever twills people have and what the way they think nothing of what he was doing was wasted uh, as far as he was con- uh, concerned, so it's only silly because it, it's alien. I guess mm-hmm. it's right. I mean, Dick Dick basically takes takes great pains to e- explain to his his crewmates how he 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 believes Tweel is is as smart or smarter than than he has, and whereas he can't seem to comprehend Tweel's language. At, at all because the the same thing can be different words at at different times is basically as as far as as he gets and he can he can get no no farther but Tweel is is able to pick up uh, Dick Jarvis's language and and c- communicate to to him and and c- communicate several several concepts that that end up you know saving saving his his life yeah the language of mathematics is universal that yeah. music, yeah. Also, when you get over his silly antics aside, he's actually more of almost a alien Man Friday to uh, Jarvis's Robinson Caruso because he basically keeps pulling his bacon out of the fire. 
time and time again throughout the series. Like, as silly as he is, he always seems to be on his A game. Especially when he tries to point out stuff that Jarvis is screwing up, ultimately. Or causing problems. Alright, so this this is a fairly short story. It was it, it, it was it was twenty seven pages long uh on 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 Project Gutenberg. Um so there's there, there's really only a few things 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 to talk about. There's there's the weird uh brick laying creature, there's there's the dream monster, and then there's like I don't even know what you would call the final creatures that they that they meet. Um, well, they kept calling them barrels, but barrels. I usually refer to them as drones because that's pretty much what they are. Yeah, yeah so I got a very ant colony kind of impression from the description of them. Yeah, well, let's 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 start with with those first. They actually kind of reminded me of of uh, Modrons almost because they're they're these weird barrel shaped creatures, but they've they've got like spindly arms, arms and legs, and they they seem to obey some kind of logic that only they under understand. They have uh, they have tasks that they're carrying out. They're pulling little carts, which yeah. presumably somebody built. Um, but they're not paying any attention to uh, to Jarvis at all. They're not acknowledging him in a way that is comprehensible. And um, so there could be some the impression. I, the impression I, I I was vaguely expecting that at the end of it, Jarvis was going to discover the uh, the queen or something like that, a central intelligence that was directing the drones. Which which never happens. No, it doesn't happen. Right. So uh, the, he he basically encounters one and says, "We are friends." And and from that point on, all of them, including ones that hadn't even met him, just say to him, "We are friends," like as their as their greeting. You know, as they as they're rushing past him to do their incomprehensible things, and then like one, I think, bangs into him, and he says, "Ouch!" And then all the creatures are suddenly saying, "We are friends." Ouch. Mm-hmm. Exactly. <laughs> and on top I, it, of that, the, sorry, go on. No, uh, I, I was going to uh, suggest that you know he uh, you assume that they're individuals. But they might not actually be individuals. They may be actually a single entity with a lot of parts. Yeah, we're never really told what's what's going on. I mean, Jarvis goes into into their lair, and then he can't find his way out again for se- you know several days. He he tries following one with a with with a push cart, but it just wanders around in 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 circles at at one point, like not even collecting anything in its in its in its push cart. And at, at at some point they find, what is it, a glowing gemstone or or, or, or something? Yeah, a, a a sort of crystal or disc. Which I think what is it's it's capable of curing like any any disease or something like curing cancer and all that stuff. Yeah, through the power of um, gamma radiation, I think is what yeah. he says. Right. Or, or X-rays. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for exactly exact quote, it was a little crystal about the size of an egg fluorescing to be Toffet. The light from it stung my hands and face, almost like a static discharge. Then I noticed another funny thing. Remember that wart I had in my left thumb? Look! Jarvis extended his hand. It dried up and fell off, just like that. And my abused nose, say the pain went out of it like magic. Basically, sorry, go on. I was going to say, just point out that Toffet is an archaic um, colloquialism for hell. So it was burning like like the fires of hell. Interesting. Yeah, I think I think uh, Jarvis's nose is a is a running gag in this in this story. He he keeps getting getting bad things happen to it. Um, 
Yeah, this this was back in the day when like radiation was good for you and, and or gave you superpowers. Um, and like all all these stories seem to have like we we go out in, into space and we find something that's got some miraculous cure all tech technology. Like the the Venusians had a potion that that made you live live forever in in uh, Pir- Pirates of Venus. Um, like like that just that just seems to be a staple that that somewhere out in the in the cosmos there's there's some kind of miraculous technology that's just that's just waiting for us right yeah mm-hmm. or like the weather machines of uh, the princess of Mars yeah this entire planet is controlled essentially by a magical chamber and then when somebody starts messing around with it he almost destroys the planet in the process I guess we're all looking for our MacGuffin when it comes down to the story and it seems to be a pretty consistent trope across sci-fi in general. Yeah, so like the the story ends basically with with uh, Dick Jarvis snatching this 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 thing, and it it, it sets off the uh, barrel creatures, and there's there's a terrific chase, and they're and they're cornered, and Tweel is apparently prepared to sacrifice himself to to save uh, his his human friend, you know, in a in a in a last act of compassion. When I think it's I think it's Puts uh, finally shows up in in the second. Uh, rocket ship and whisks uh, Dick Jarvis off to off to safety, and and I think I think the very last line of the story is 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 revealed that uh, Dick Jarvis still has the you know miracle gemstone in his in his in his pocket. Yeah, he grabbed it, which is why they attacked him, which he didn't mention uh, at that point in the story. And and according to Wikipedia, this was the first part of a, of a trilogy, which sadly Weinbaum didn't get to complete. Yeah, I, w- I would have been interested to see uh, these characters again. You you would have or would would not have. I would have. I I, I liked the the characters had personalities, mm-hmm. and therefore they weren't just you know cardboard cutout stand-ins. And I liked the fact that they were scientists and explorers. And it's a shame that you didn't finish uh, finish the trilogy because I would have I would have enjoyed reading more uh, of the. Uh, these characters. So let's let's talk about the two other creatures that we get introduced to because these are these are almost classic D and D monsters. We've we've got this this weird uh, brick laying thing, right? I mean, he just so they're 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 walking along in the in the desert and they and they find these these pyramids that are are slowly increasing in in inside and even even before they they find the creature i'm sort of thinking it's it's like it's like a snail you know it's it's some sort of creature that like carries or like or like builds its own its own house or something mm-hmm. uh and mm-hmm. and jarvis is is going on about um oh these these bricks are made of silicate or something and the fact that they're eroded means that they're that they must be millions of years old because silicate doesn't erode that fast and they they finally get to pyramids that are like man size and out pops this i mean it's, it's really like a like an earth elemental thing almost almost like a like a zorn or something very right? much so i think yeah. yeah but it's it's rectangular shaped isn't it with like a pointy tail it had a tail on one end and a mouth on the other with a single arm right next to the mouth. Um, and the mouth is not actually a mouth because it... it it's, it's a cloaca, it turns out. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Okay, I, I don't know why I thought that, that the creature itself was 
brick shaped, but apparently I need need to read more closely. So like this this thing hops out of the the last completed pyramid and buries itself in the sand, and it, it's revealed that it basically eats the sand and poops out out bricks. And it's Indeed. been it's been doing this for millions of years. Yeah, the creature yeah. was essentially immortal for all intents and purposes. It was neither alive nor dead, quote unquote. And it was basically creating stuff, and as a side product, it was literally creating pyramids, which would really mess up a lot of people who believe in ancient astronaut theory, something fierce. Yeah, this this was probably before. Would 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 this have been before like all the all the people were taking photos and and, yes. and, and thinking there were pyramids on I, on I believe on Mars. this would predate the pyramids on Mars. Yeah, yeah. absolutely, yeah. by about at least thirty years. Yeah, yeah, at least. Okay. Yeah. I'm trying to think if Percival Lowell ever talked about or claimed he saw pyramids. I don't think that he did, but I could he, be mistaken. He definitely claimed he saw signs of civilization, but I don't think he, he had enough detail to be able to claim anything like that. I did like the uh, reference to, uh, oh, uh, what's his name, uh, Schiaparelli. Uh, because Schiaparelli uh, made maps based off of the uh, the 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 Martian surface and they talk about his naming of the, 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 the various places. And, uh, so when they're talking about, I, I went from this place to this place, they're loosely based off of the, the maps of Scaparelli who did it in the, hmm. the, the, the late 19th century. Interesting. Hmm. As for an actual monster comparison, I was looking through the monster manual. I think I found the closest equivalent. It's not perfect. Because it only has two arms opposed to one, but I'm looking in the Monster Manual 3.5, and I'm looking at the Delver, which has a very similar shape. Yeah, that's that's not what I remember, probably because it's not very. Memorable. Yeah, it's a very obscure monster here. Yeah, but... I, like I was, I was thinking like either either a Zorn or like an an Arumvirax. Um but yeah, like like any any Earth elemental monster, right? And, and this this isn't even like a monster that that you fight. Like this this is is a is a window dressing monster. This is a monster you throw in front of your of your PCs to let them know, hey, this is a fantasy setting. Things are are weird here, right? Gotcha. It's color text. Yeah, it'd be difficult to design an encounter around a monster that is not interested in you and has nothing that you want. Like, yeah, I, could, I could see like a situation where like you you go to sleep and you wake up and this thing is like building a pyramid around you. And so do you just get up and walk away? Right, pretty much. <laughs> However, if these pyramids are anywhere, things I could see them easily being hollowed out by other inhabitants, kind of using them as essentially setting up real estate if they could build it at a relatively quick speed. Yeah, sure. like, you, you, know. you could have like an entire town like inside one of these giant giant pyramids, right? And, then, I, I, and you know. It also, uh, you know, from a sort of skill-based encounter, uh, it 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 would be very interesting to sort of here's a bunch of evidence, and you follow the evidence until you find figure out, oh, okay, this is what's going on, uh, and it yeah, because that's you know just what the the hero does. He's like, all right, I'm going to follow these pyramids. All right, well, now I've seen what the what the came out of it. Let's see if I can figure out how they relate, and you know, comes up with an explanation. That's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. And, and and you know, like PCs would would find like some some way 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 to use these bricks. You know, like just just like put them in their in their bag and like throw throw them at monsters or something. You know. <laughs> hey, heck, build up your walls. Hey, look, we're going to be attacked. Let's put up a thousand side. We have or, bricks. 
hey, we've we've, we've got our our own fortress. We've 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 we've, <laughs> well, we've it, it, we just have to have to put it to, together. Put it together. <laughs> uh, I I would you know if I came across one of them, I'd be like, I'm betting an alchemist will want this, and yeah. you know find the the, the al- alchemist at the next town and like. This is the story on this thing. I think you might be interested in what this brick is. There's, there's, there's always a point in in every Maybe. campaign where some PC tries to skin something, and I have to sit there and try to figure out what might possibly be the value of an of an owl bear skin. But uh, yeah, you get the smell. Oh, can't like, you like imagine having owl. a nice owl bear uh, coat? That oh. would be stylish and warm in the winter. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You could take it to the thrift shop when you were done. Um, <laughs> well, you would clean it. You know. I just, I just don't like, you know, you know, having to be the guy to, who has to figure out the GP value of ground up X, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll bear beak X beak dust. <laughs> I'm mixing my words up. Yeah, Mo, did you, did you say Mos Eisley? Well, what I'm thinking more than anything else, as long as we don't have to deal with the owl bear pellets, I think we'll be okay. <laughs> Most Eisley is not an unreasonable comparison, though. You know, there are a lot of weird monsters for weird monsters' sake in Moss Eisley. All right, so the the final creature is is almost like it's it, it's such a perfect D and D monster, right? It's 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 the Dream Beast. It 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 basically shows you a picture of what you want to see most and lures you towards it and. It's not really that thing. It's it's actually a giant black tentacle monster that's that's gonna gonna eat you. And like there there must be like if if there's one D and D monster that does this, there must be like like a hundred. You know, mm-hmm. I'm I, I'm thinking to to the top of my mind comes comes the wolf in sheep's clothing. You know, yeah, that was uh, my first thought. Uh, one of my faves. I, it, Love, right, on the other end of the the spectrum is the the nymph. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know the, the the or the naiad or what have you, uh, yeah they lure you in because ooh aren't we pretty and oh we're gonna kill you now or even even just a just a mimic yeah I think it would be a good choice physiologically the best I got from the description was something like a dark mantle mind you it doesn't have the psychic component mm-hmm. it's this mass of tentacles and eyes that just well doesn't like you. Well, I mean, yeah. basically, what we're what we're what we're we're describing here is the monster that is that is a trap, right? It's it's it's, it's not a monster that that you that, that you fight, but you you walk into the room, it it gets you with its gimmick, and and then the PCs surround it and stab it with swords. But for for a round or two, the the DM gets to have a good good laugh at at your ex- expense. Yeah, and it's kind of interesting the way that the you can call it an illusion is presented in this story because Jarvis is walking along and he sees the woman that he happened to be thinking of at the time uh, and she's just standing there waving at him exactly as she did when he got on the spaceship and left Earth. Uh, He uh, begins to approach her, he's talking to her, she's not acknowledging him or responding in any way, she's just waving at him exactly the way that she did uh, before. And, you know, I suppose Jarvis begins to suspect that something is up at that point, but he's still willing to get a little bit closer to the, uh, to the illusion, and that's the point at which Tweel uh, rescues him it, it, It's basically by the spell, shooting it. Uh, it's, it's the spell's suggestion. 
yeah, it's not it's not a terribly plausible illusion. I guess is the thing that I'm taken away from it. It's not as though um, he was talking to the woman and the woman was coming up with some kind of convincing story about how she got to Mars and how she needed him to come over here. It's not Mars is Heaven by, uh, Ray, by Ray Bradbury is what I'm saying. Yeah. It's, mm-hmm. it's much more basic and primal. The, the creature, I don't get the impression that they the tentacle monster creatures in any way intelligent. It yeah, just exactly. Has, just yeah. as a mechanism that, that mm-hmm. is like, here's something you're thinking about. Let me show you that. Yeah, it's basically and, a story. Go on. Yeah, and, and, and basically Dick Dick Jarvis failed his, his will save, so he's he is compelled to approach even even though he thinks something something's fishy. Yeah, yeah. And it's it, it right. maybe worth pointing out that uh, when Jarvis meets Tweel, Tweel has succumbed to exactly this kind of monster and because the illusion is aimed at Tweel rather than at Jarvis Jarvis doesn't see anything except a monster and he's easily able to uh does he drive it off or does he kill it I forget I I I forget but I mean we 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 basically come to the to to the conclusion that 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 the monster can only show one illusion at a at a a time so so like either either Tweel sees this human woman which he doesn't really care about or he just sees a, a massive black tentacles, and that's that's how he's he's able to get Dick out of out of trouble. Mm-hmm. I got the I got the impression that Twill was also seeing something at first that was relevant to whatever was going on in his head, but he noticed that Jarvis was acting in a way that he wouldn't expect, and that's what set him off. I think I think Dick brings up that possibility but ultimately says like he doesn't really know what what happened just just that Tweel didn't see the same thing or yeah. or or wasn't taken in yeah he and Tweel were not able to communicate with that level of clarity yeah mm-hmm. and in a nutshell he basically fired on the thing and it screwed off making a disgusting sucking noise so obviously that's probably why they ended up bonding at the first part of the story mm-hmm. you know it's just basically he saved his life and uh then he got to admire him and see how much of an aberration to Veal really is. Yeah. Um, I, I think that the, the, the notion of this sort of thing wandering around in the, in the wild leads to all kinds of questions about how does that evolve? <laughs> yeah. Well, that, a... pre- that presumes that there's evolution at work. What if the, uh, the red Martians, um, engineered it yeah yeah could you know there could be any number of uh possible answers from wizard on down indeed so i feel like we've talked about pretty much everything that happens in this story there's not a whole lot that goes into it um so what what can we take from this story and see in dungeons and dragons or what can we apply to dungeons and dragons is that a meaningful question at this point? Because it's very obviously, it's a story about a group of guys going out and mm-hmm. exploring a harsh wilderness. And so the connection to D&D is kind of self-evident. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think we've, we've, been, we've been describing it as, as we go. I mean, all the, I mean other, other than Tweel, the, the, the barrel monsters, the, the bricklayer, the dream beast, I mean, these are, these are all, 
all all have have connections to uh, classic D and D monsters. I mean, the the bricklayer is is kind of like like the Zorn or the or the Delver or the Arumvirax. The the Dream Beast is kind of kind of like the the Dryad or the Nymph or a or a or a mimic or the wolf in sheep's clothing and the the barrel creatures are kind of like modrons which actually happen to be my favorite uh dnd creature i got oh. almost the vibe that they were almost they almost had a look of a lovecraftian horror but they were actually kind of friendly for what they were the drones because they were radio and designed they had eyes all over the place and multiple arms like they were very radio and radio when they came to their symmetry similar to the elder things yeah, exactly. They could they could be uh, Pixar monsters. Sure, uh, and I actually I, I a lot of the early D and D had a lot of science fiction mixed in with it, mm-hmm. so, so I can sort of see the connection in the, that regard. Uh, I think the thing that I I I take from it is um, most fantasy RP role playing games D and D what have you. Basically, is uh, is a modeled after you know Western Europe, uh, with some you know, and we'll have the Arabian culture over here, and we'll have the Asian culture over there, and but most of the stuff we'll talk about is in a European culture type thing. That's yeah, albeit a European culture that has wizards and no Christianity. Sure, That's but nice. I mean, but they do have uh, certainly some Christian. Uh, uh, anal- uh, um, analogous cultural elements. Saint Saint Cuthbert, Saint Cuthbert, mm-hmm. Cuthbert being uh, an example. But um, this is an example of how to do a story in a place that is in no way related to uh, a uh, uh, you know a Western European model. This is a completely alien environment. They get to explore the completely alien environment and figure out what is uh, dangerous and what isn't. And that's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. That's cool. I don't know that it's a particular innovation with this story because I think you could say the same thing about Pellucidar, uh, to pick an example at random. Sure. In a lot of ways. Yeah, but I, I think I think Weinbaum does it a lot better than 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 Pellucidar. I mean, I, I I found this story a lot more entertaining to read than most of most of Burroughs, and and I, and it I, was short. Yeah, I do mm-hmm. think that if you took uh, the Pellucidar, uh, Pellucidar and you compressed it down to twenty seven pages, I might have enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed a Martian Odyssey. Well, uh, and a Martian Odyssey is a pretty fun read. Also, uh, I meant it as a a lesson to take away for D anD D though is is. You don't actually have to be locked to the sort of traditional things that you expect from cultures in in D and D and fantasy, epic fantasy. You can do something different and odd, and uh, you know, uh, make it about exploring and discovering. Uh, and I think oh, that's that, yeah, that's the lesson I would take for D and D out of this. Yeah, I think I think the the exploring and and discovering gets gets lost a lot. Right, because 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 the DM has to has to make up something, and and then he has to go convince his players to first discover it, and then be you know care care about it enough to enough to poke at it. So like like that can that can be be hard to do, but if you can if you can pull it off, and you have players who are interested, it can it can be a whole lot lot of fun. Sure. Mm-hmm. All right. Does does anyone have any? Last comments to make about A Martian Odyssey by Stanley Weinbaum. 
something that we have not mentioned is that the entire story is being narrated by Jarvis to the rest of the crew, and we did mention that, but we didn't mention that they regularly interrupt him with interjections, uh, which are generally pretty entertaining, and his response to the interjections is usually some kind of insult. Um, he's just he's insulting everybody left and right as he tells this story. Yeah, and yeah. I, I think I think it's it's that it's like it it's that dialogue that like kept the story from from getting bogged down in into like oh here's one episode after another of of chases and and escapes right yeah and it's a mode that stories used to get uh science fiction and fantasy stories used to be written in uh, a great deal uh back in the day that you don't see much anymore the sort of the club story somebody recounting something that happened and other his audience interrupting with questions and comments isn't isn't that basically Alan Alan Quatermain? Sure, sure. Yeah, and also the vibe you get from this group is, despite them each other, for lack of a better term, busting their balls, they seem like a pretty tight group for the most part. It, it, you know, it sounded... sorry, go on. No, you were uh, go ahead. Yeah, you could really tell a vibe that they were basically they were contention, but they weren't really going for the jugular ultimately. You know, they were basically more, they were as much concerned as they were, for lack of a better term, trying to find out why you didn't do this, that, and the other thing, you idiot. Yeah, why why didn't you bring me back a, you know, a sample? (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's not unlike the experience I've had hanging out with my friends. I, I do the LARPing thing. Yes, I know. Uh, LARPing is, is, is verboten in most circles, but... Uh, it's not nearly as cool and hip as doing a podcast about uh, Appendix N of the Dungeon Master's Guide. That's true. Gotta say that. Uh, but yeah, when the guys are you know sitting around at at an event and talking about the the adventure they just came back on, they they exchange insults like you do when you're hanging out at the bar. I mean, you it's just the the, the conversations are fairly natural that way. It's mm-hmm. one of the things I liked about the story, actually. I mean, they're 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 four men with no one but e- each other, and they're and they're all alone on on Mars. So, they they they'd have to be friends. Mm-hmm. Or kill each other. <laughs> yeah, that'll be part two. No. All right. Any 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 last comments? All right, Jeremiah. Where can people find you on the interwebs? Probably the best thing for people to find on the interwebs is uh, the the basics of the game, which is my YouTube show about uh, uh, gaming and uh, geek culture and, and stuff, you know. We even do some life updates uh, occasionally, but mainly it's about gaming and stuff. All right, check that out. And Chris Constantine, where can people find you? They can find me at drevrpg.blogspot.ca. We are going to be dropping a free book on Google Books on the 15th of July. It is called The Book of Arrogance. It is our psychic book for the post-post-apocalyptic world of magic I have created. It oh, includes sweet. new and crazy... Oh, absolutely. It includes new and crazy races such as dragons and, yes, intelligent house cats. Also minotaurs as hair metal rockers from a far-off dimension. That sounds pretty awesome. Thank you. All right, and Jeff, just in case people forgot since the last episode, tell us all about your webpage. 
I can be found at J-E-F-F-W-I-K, jeffwick.com, where I'm continuing to uh, read my way through Herodotus. And you can find my comic retelling of Sir Thomas Mallory's La Morte de Arthur on Amazon, Arthur Dies at the End. Okay, you heard the man. Be sure to check that out. And in case you didn't get those web addresses, they will be in the show notes. Or you can just, you know, rewind five minutes when you have the time. Uh, we sincerely hoped you liked this discussion of A Martian Odyssey by Stanley G. Weinbaum. We do not have any plans to discuss more works by this author, but that's where you, the listeners, come in. If you think we're doing this man a gross injustice, if you've read some of his other stories and think they are just amazing and they just need to be talked about, you can let us know. Send an email to thetomeshow at thetomeshow at gmail.com. Put Appendix N in the subject line, and that way it'll get to me. Our next show will cover The Case of Charles Dexter Ward by H.P. Lovecraft, and that is truly one of his best stories ever, so you can look forward to an amazing discussion. Next, we will return to the Hyborian Age with three more Conan stories, Shadows in the Moonlight, Queen of the Black Coast, and The Devil in Iron. And finally, after that, you can look forward to a discussion of a new author, or new to us, anyway, as we talk about The Legion of Space by Jack Williamson. I have not been able to find a free copy of The Legion of Space on the web. If you know of a free legal resource for this story, please do let us know. In the meantime, you can buy super cheap used copies from Amazon.com, and there's an audiobook version available at Audible.com. This has been a Tome Show production of Appendix N, Episode 20, A Martian Odyssey by Stanley Weinbaum. Thanks for listening.